This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Catherine Jarmel. Catherine is a Python developer and data analyst based in Berlin, Germany. Her company, KJamistan, does data science consulting and training on topics surrounding machine learning, natural language processing, and data testing. Catherine is the co-author of the O'Reilly book, Data Wrangling with Python, and she's the presenter of the live online training course, Practical Data Cleaning with Python. She also presents the videos of Building Data Pipelines with Python and Data Wrangling and Analysis with Python. You can find out more about all these items on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com for more details. We'll talk with Catherine about data wrangling, the tools that can help speed up the data wrangling process, why Python has become a preferred language for use in data science, and a lot more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much. So before we get into some Python discussion, first, can you give us a, a brief explanation of what data wrangling is? Oh, gosh, that's uh, hard to define. I think uh, you can find a lot of different definitions out there. But I do think we can define it uh, briefly, which is basically data munging, data wrangling, um, all of these data transformations that we have to do within the data science space. It means that you get data that's real world data. And a lot of times it's not pretty. And you have to figure out a way to clean it, organize it, perhaps validate it and put it into some format you can actually work with. And I would say that's what data wrangling is in a larger sense. You've said that natural language processing is inherently messy. And of course, you talk about messy data in your book and some of your presentations. Can you give us an example of a messy problem in a data set? Yeah, definitely. Um, so NLP and natural language processing, they offer us a lot, right? We, we think of text as this structured space and we say, oh, yeah, there are rules and, you know, there's only one way to spell something. But then you take a look at the language that you can find on the Internet, which is often the source that we'll use for something. And not only do we find like sarcasm or uh, emphasis or other things that are really difficult to teach a program how to do, but we also find typos, misspelling, slang, hashtags. I mean, this is not a nice place to work in. Okay, so why has Python emerged as a preferred language and perhaps the preferred language for use in data science? Well, I think that a few things converged at once. One, first and foremost, I think Python as a scripting language and as something we can use for scraping and easy transformations of types made it easy to begin to collect data with. And I think that was kind of probably the first bits. And then I think there was a bit of uh, inspiration both within academia and the finance world that created some of the packages that we all use today, like NumPy and Pandas and SciPy and Scikit-learn, these all started happening. And because also the accessibility of Python as a language, the fact that it is really flexible and it is beginner friendly, mm -hmm. I think kind of it was this convergence of all of this happening at once. And now, of course, it's, it's massively exploded. And the fact that even if your, you know, let's say deep learning framework is built in Torch or C++, the first uh, community you reach out to now, it seems, is always Python. So even if it's not the core, it's always, oh, let's build PyTorch or let's build, you know, PySpark. Let's uh, get those crazy Python folks on board. So, <laughs> Well, I want to come back to the tools and Python and data analysis in, in just a couple of minutes. But let's talk a bit about your background. Um, it's interesting and, and somewhat unusual, I think, that, that you come from a media and journalism background, having worked at both the Washington Post 
and USA Today. So how did you move from that into becoming a, a Pythonista and into data analysis? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it is interesting because I don't meet that many folks that have that same background, but it's actually more similar than you'd think. Um, the space of data journalism now is filled with folks who are statisticians, R folks, Python folks who have, you know, this data wrangling, you know, experience or exposure and use it to tell stories. So the overlap um, and the transition into the data science world from data journalism was actually fairly smooth for me, interestingly enough. And um, I think that that's how a lot of folks kind of move between those worlds. Um, for me personally, I originally studied computer science in school and left it um, because I had some issues with diversity in my program. And I found that it wasn't necessarily a good culture fit for me. But it was really neat to join the Washington Post team and start working with Python and start uh, getting back into computer science fundamentals five years after I had thought I would never do computer science again. Wow. Well, when you were there and when you were in, in journalism, can you tell us and give us an example of using data to tell stories? Yes. Yeah. So one of my favorite projects that I like to remember was Katrina uh, 10 years later, and it was a look back on Hurricane Katrina and everything that had happened. We used Python to both scrape a bunch of publicly available data as well as do some geo analysis. So essentially, we used Postgres with GIS um, to do different queries on shapefiles and to build essentially this census data that you could interact with on the website, uh, looking at what types of demographics were affected and looking at demographics throughout time. That was pretty powerful piece. It, it garnered a lot of attention and it was also really amazing to work on. This whole idea of a data person as a storyteller, is, is that something that's not, not talked about enough? I would definitely say so. Uh, sometimes I meet folks and they're really great and specialized and the scientific aspect of what they know is amazing. But I've found that one part that's missing in that data science journey, so to speak, or in any experiments that you do is the ability to tell a story that somebody might remember. So whether it's that you're presenting to the board and they need to understand what types of growth patterns you see in your customer base, or whether it's something like journalism and social activism, this is a way to kind of use those data science tools and that statistical or scientific background and marry it with something that somebody might actually use to change their life or that might affect them or their company. And I think you kind of have to have both. It doesn't have to both be in the same person, but to have a really effective team, you have to have both. So let's go back to wrangling messy data. What tools can help you speed up the data wrangling process? Is it correct like that you use Python libraries to clean and then use Python scripts to analyze the, the cleaned data? Yeah. So normally, you know, you you do some element of data exploration first where you're taking a look at your data and you're seeing just how awful it is, maybe. Um, a lot of times, if it's semi-structured, you can use something like Pandas. Most of the time, folks I know now are using Jupyter Notebooks or Jupyter Hub or some other Jupyter-based uh, project to share their code, to share these exploratory notebooks. Uh, and then, of course, you have uh, quite a lot of statistical tools and libraries now. So Within your area, you might specifically use um, SciPy uh, or SimPy or 
a number of these different Pi data type of products uh, or libraries. And then you can use that to start to explore the data, um, both visually, perhaps, and also statistically. I, I know you've talked about how you use a, a Jupyter Notebook, and, and I love how you described a Jupyter Notebook as a fancy name for a Python terminal that I can run in my browser. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I was a big IPython user and fan before Jupyter even occurred. And then to find that they were moving it to the browser, to find that it was going to have all this great uh, added functionality of being able to see, you know, the charts and the graphs and the visuals. I mean, it's it's amazing the fact that I can give a whole training now in Jupyter Notebooks. Everybody knows how to use them. I can play around with them. I, in fact, teach a university course that almost all of our coding activities are Jupyter Notebook based. Yeah. Yeah, including tests and quizzes and stuff. So it's um, the Jupyter ecosystem is, I'm a big fan of it. And can you talk a little bit more about Pandas, you know, how, how you use them and how, how Python fits in? Yeah, so Pandas, um, you know, was originally built primarily for financial data, but it's expanded a bunch beyond that. So now, I mean, I think it's, I could be wrong, but it could, I think it's six years of Pandas now or so, and uh, or maybe five. But either way, Pandas allows you to essentially have uh, what I call it's Excel on steroids. Yeah. So it's tabular data. It allows you to manipulate and transform it quite easily. It has some nice add-ons for when you're looking at graphs or when you're looking at time series. So I think for anybody that's using this kind of structured tabular data, you can't go wrong with doing some part of your analysis in Pandas. And we talked about cleaning data and analyzing data. What about testing? Um, can Python help with testing? Yeah. So I have, um, uh, as you are aware of, I have a two-day live training with O'Reilly that uh, I've been working on for the past year. And in this, we talk about both data validation and testing of data science code. And I think this is unfortunately often overlooked in a lot of ways. Uh, because as you know, data scientists and explorers of data, we're a little bit more excited about the exploration and then you know, coming to useful conclusions or building cool models than the testing side of things. Uh, probably not dissimilar to a lot of programmers, as you know. Yeah. So, um, so testing sometimes gets left uh, on the wayside or, ah, oh, no, it's too hard to test for that. We'll figure it out later. And I think that this is a really big problem, especially as you get to you know, regression tests or performance tests, how do you put this into production in a way that's not going to negatively impact the entire experience or the site or the app or whatever it is you're trying to do? So I think that testing as a larger sense is becoming more important within the data science community than maybe it was before. And that's exciting to me because, of course, you know, when you've been programming for a decade, as I have been now, you, you've been burned enough times that you know that proper tests will never be a bad idea. Yeah. I want to ask you about something else you've talked about in your presentations. That's uh, sentiment analysis. Can you, can you briefly explain what that is and what's happening now in that field? Yeah. So sentiment analysis is the ability for me to take a look at some text and perhaps a larger series of texts and determine What's the sentiment? What's the feeling that that writer has? And there's a few different aspects within sentiment analysis. So we can talk about overall. Um, and I say, ah, oh, that movie is horrible. And that means overall the sentiment is bad. But there's also then sentiment analysis that's aspect-based, that a little bit like well, the plot was a little bit boring, but I really liked the actress. And 
So I think that um, sentiment analysis in and of itself is quite complex. And uh, in the field right now, the models that are kind of beating what we would call the state of the art are doing some interesting stuff. And whether it's these token-based trees that the Stanford NLP group has been really great at figuring out how to build trees that allow you to understand changes in sentiment as the sentence goes on or as the entire article goes on, as well as some interesting developments in the character level RNNs. So this is the ability for the neural network, um, recurrent neural network, to predict sentiment over a series of characters over time. And there's interesting developments in both of those. But the, the thing I often hear is, oh, sentiment is a solved problem space. And it's really a, a far from that, actually. And we're talking about like not just articles in traditional media, but also analyzing social media, right? Yes, indeed. In fact, that's quite a lot of the focus of many of the competitions, because of course, when you think of the sentiment space, a lot of times I want to analyze it in the bot that I'm writing in a chat bot, or I want to analyze it in reviews you left on my website. So these are not always this structured language of, let's say, like a journalist writing a formal review. And I've, I've heard you talk about this, and it also includes trying to analyze emojis, right? Yeah, emojis or, for example, now we, we talk to each other in GIFs a lot. And it's just, how do you even begin with that, right? I mean, it has no, even a still image as a response is quite common when you think about Twitter or even when you think about other social media sites. This becomes a way that we communicate with one another. And figuring out ways that we can label this in something meaningful. I mean, the, the neat models maybe perhaps start to learn some of this. And I know that there's also some research in terms of a lot of like, like Giphy and so forth might have tags. And we can maybe use the text of these tags to infer sentiment. But our language continues to evolve whether our NLP models care about it or not. Yeah. So. Uh, the continued, you know, evolution, especially of how people talk to each other online and in social media situations has evolved a lot over the past 20 years and will probably continue to do so. So we have to be clever with figuring out ways to solve this problem. And, and is Python also involved here in, in playing a role in doing sentiment analysis? Indeed. So uh, although the Stanford NLP group tends to use Java. They usually write some sort of Python connectors and they have an API for this very reason. And then some of my favorite NLP Python libraries are Gensim and Spacey. And they're both leading, I would say, the, the edge of the ability to just install a library and have it do quite a lot of these deep learning tasks or these machine learning tasks for you. Can you maybe talk about some actual data analysis that, that you've done recently? What, what kind of things have, have you been working on either professionally or just in a personal kind of experiments? Yeah, so I've been recently trying to kind of work within the space of machine learning interpretability. And this is because I care a lot about how we present machine learning to, let's say, even the average layperson and also how we can determine whether our model has learned something useful or not. So I've been playing a lot with a library called Lime and another library called ELI5, which means explain to me like I'm five. And they're both um, Python based, which is pretty fun. And they are able to kind of introspect into certain types of models 
and tell you, okay, this is what it thinks is important. This is why it classified uh, this particular image or this particular text as this one thing. And they've been really fun for me to play around with and start to take a look at some of the internals. And my new pet project is, can you strip away as much of this you know, fancy feature engineering and still come up with a really accurate model that you can also interpret? And I think this is um, also very hot within the field and something that's quite interesting. So what are you, what are you finding so far? <laughs> so, you know, some uh, problems are easier than others. Uh, but what I would say is that uh, I give I gave a keynote uh, last or two weeks ago now in St. Petersburg uh, that was around this, as well as one at Pi Data Warsaw a few weeks before that. And I was able to show that you didn't lose that much accuracy to have something that was quite a bit more interpretable, especially when you're working on a simple regression problem or a simple classification problem. Now, not everybody's problems are simple. But let's say you're trying to classify something like sentiment, right? Uh, there's no reason to build an overly complex model to have two percentage points better um, when you can have something, you can maybe even add some value to your product or your service by saying, hey, guess what? I can explain to you why this is negative or I can explain to you why this person doesn't like the plot. That uh, adds some level of value that, you know, I think is worth those two percentage points of accuracy and so forth. And this past summer, I believe, you've given some presentations at some conferences in Europe on ethics in data and ethics in machine learning. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the ethical considerations you feel it's important for not only data analysts, but also programmers and developers to be aware of. Yeah. So I think. Um, my first uh, keynote ever that I gave was uh, this past year at PyData Amsterdam, and that focused on ethical machine learning and how we can perhaps as machine learning enthusiasts or practitioners, as well as researchers, how we can focus on ethics and therefore maybe have more fair models, even though the data that we use in the world is quite unfair. So we see this problem and it's been covered quite a lot in the past few years by many conferences, many researchers, and you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants and so forth in presenting this research that shows, hey, the data in the world has a lot of really unethical things in it. Um, and when we use it to train these models, our models can do what they're supposed to do, which is learn from the data, right? But unfortunately, what, what we need to do as responsible kind of machine learning practitioners and also just as responsible programmers is say, hey, okay, I know that there might be some really bad stuff lurking in this data. What can I do to check for it? What can I do to prevent my model from repeating these unfair and unjust things that I see in the world? So I think that that also kind of then links back to um, my own history in data journalism and saying, okay, we can do probably a lot better than just repeating the same mistakes over and over again. What's an example of something like that? So one example is um, within the word vectors um, that Google released based on their news data sets, you can find a lot of really, uh, I would say that they're irresponsible things in a sense that, um, for example, if you compare man to computer programmer, you get woman is to homemaker. 
And really? so these, yeah. yeah, so these are things that, you know, I've experienced in my life in negative aspects that I don't want necessarily my models to repeat. So and, and there's no fault of Google necessarily. I'm not trying to pick on them. But what I am trying to say is that we find these nuances in language and particularly, uh, you know, when we when we don't pay attention to how when we try to train on a very, very large data set and there's no way for us to read through every article and approve it then we can end up replicating these types of stereotypes in our word vectors. And then we use these word vectors and perhaps then we perpetrate these stereotypes. So it's, it's less of a, oh, machine learning in and of itself is biased. It's more of a, hey, we need to really think about our data and how do we test our data and how do we perhaps correct for unfair treatment in our data? This is something that I think is really big question for the machine learning researchers and practitioners. Yeah, and, and what kind of reaction or feedback are you getting to discussing ethics? So generally, I think people are really intrigued to, um, I think particularly when you speak to a data science audience, the people are intrigued for solutions. Uh, how do we actually combat this? How can we test for this? And the really cool thing is there's entire machine learning conferences now like Fat ML that are just focused on how to we create fair models. And so some of the research that's coming out of those places is really informative for how do we correct for these? How do we test for these? And in fact, Google had a really good paper and they actually released an interactive as well doing the same type of study, but for let's say an underrepresented group, they did it based on like, let's say credit processing. And I believe they said, you know, we have a blue group and we have a red group and we have many more examples of the red group being affluent and we have very few examples of the blue group. And so it tends to be biased against the blue group, even though um, the person in the blue group may have uh, adequate statistical you know, representation from within their sampling to say, OK, yes, they do get credit. So it's just it's about thinking of our tests and thinking of our populations and our samples in ways that both make statistical sense, that also make for a more fair treatment of all different types of folks. Well, let's talk for a few minutes about Python communities. You're very active in PyData meetup groups in Berlin, right? Yeah, I'm part of the organizing team that does the monthly meetups and then the yearly conference. Can you give us a feel for what's happening in that community? Yeah, PyData Berlin is really fun community. We've been growing pretty quickly over the past, I believe it's been around for four years now. And it's a pretty vibrant community here in Berlin. We have quite a lot of universities. So there tends to be, I think, a little bit of an academic skew compared to some other Pi Datas, but I find it to be really invigorating. And it's just one of actually many meetups in Berlin that are focused within this space of data science and machine learning and natural language processing. So it's kind of fun to go to a lot of the different meetups and hear about people's favorite new research and papers and how they built this tool to do uh, some new form of introspection. It's a really cool uh, community to be a part of. And you're one of the founders of the group Pi Ladies. Uh, can you talk about the origins of that group and what's happening with Pi Ladies now? Yeah, so Pi Ladies started, um, actually, we chose the name over some lasagna that I cooked in my kitchen uh, in, in Los Angeles in, I believe, like late, uh, actually, it might have been early 2011. So um, it was a while ago now. But the awesome thing is, is it was this core group of women. We were a diverse group of women. And we decided, 
okay, we're tired of being kind of at all these Python meetups in Los Angeles, hanging out together, you know, over a, a free beer or some snacks at the end of a meetup. Let's do something about it. Let's do something to get more uh, women and more other diverse folks into the community and in front of people and speaking. And by the time our third or fourth event, I believe, was our first hackathon. And I remember it very clearly because more than 100 people showed up and there was over 60 women there. And I had never been at a tech meetup that had majority women and that had, you know, 60 women from the Los Angeles tech community just hanging out hacking for the weekend. And it was amazing. So um, from there, it kind of picked up and all of a sudden we started getting emails. Oh, hey, I live in Sydney. Can I start one? Can I live in San Francisco. Can I start one? And we made a little starter kit and sent it out on GitHub to people and said, yeah, sure. Start your own Pylades chapter. You know, here's some workshops that we've done. Here's some hackathon ideas. And since then, now it's this massive, you know, global force and is part of the PSF now. And they do fundraising for it at an auction every year. And it's pretty neat to see, you know, something that literally we just thought, oh, yeah, we should probably do a little bit of something become much, much bigger than ourselves, of course. That's great. Well, Catherine, this, is, this has been a great discussion. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where can they go? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at KJAM, uh, K-J-A-M, or you can find me at my company website, which is kjamistan.com. Well, Catherine Jermel, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Once again, you can find out more about the training courses and videos on Python and data that are presented by our guest, Catherine Jarmel, as well as the book Data Wrangling with Python that she co-authored by going to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, and we'll have links to all these items in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.